Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before them, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmuthea. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the, for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, How is it that you do not understand? Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he took up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do, you, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. Some say, but some say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them not that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke the word openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher this morning as we look into your word. We thank you that your words are spirit and they're life. We thank you that your word will outlive the heavens and the earth. And Father, we want to not just hear your words, but obey them. So we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you'd show us what areas we need to change. We need to let you change in our lives, Lord, that we can gaze into your word this morning as a mirror and not forget what we look like when we leave and that we would allow you to change us from the inside out. Thank you that you're so faithful to do that. Thank you, Father, that you are so faithful to further conform us into the image of Christ. 
We yield our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We left off last week with Jesus facing more opposition. And last week we saw him kind of leave Isaiah proper and he went to Phoenicia and he met a woman of Syrophoenician background or origins and she begged him to deliver her daughter who was demon-possessed. And she had great faith, we saw. And she said, even the, even the little dogs have take up the crumbs from the table and from underneath the table. And she was saying... In essence, she was saying that I don't want the food that's for the Jews. I, don't want, I know you came for the Jews, but even the crumbs of what they have, what they get, is powerful enough to, to meet the needs of my daughter. And that, that faith that she had in him and his ability and his word and so forth moved him. And so he uh, healed and delivered her daughter from demon possession. And then we saw him go into the area of Decapolis. Deca means ten. Paulus means city, and so it was the city, an area of 10 cities there, and we we're going we're gonna to see that area. He's going to be in that area today as we look in our passage, but it was a very Gentile area, Greek uh, influence and so forth with that culture, and, and there he met and healed a uh, man that was deaf, and he was mute, and it was a beautiful expression of his heart, just ministering to him and, and, and ministering it to him in a way that was very significant in terms of how he dealt with them, how he ministered to needs that maybe the man didn't even know he had. And Jesus loves to do that. And he does it so well. So often he deals with us and heals us and, and, and works in our lives and, and meets our needs that we're unfamiliar with until he actually does the work. And then we realize that we had need that, he, that we didn't even know of. And we can further trust him for the future related to what he can do and wants to do in our lives as well. So today, as I mentioned, we're still in this area of the Decapolis there, and we're going to see him feed 4,000, among other things. And we see his heart there for um, the Gentiles, really, because only Mark and Matthew mention this, the feeding of the 4,000, and it's not insignificant that he's in the area where it's mostly Gentiles there. It's very important for us to understand that. See, in the Gospel of John, as we'll see when we get there, the day after he fed the 5,000, he talked about being the bread of life. And he was comparing what he just had performed, this miracle, with the fact that he uh, offers spiritual food. He offers eternal life to people that believe and so forth. And so his provision was linked to him being the bread of life. So for him to do it in this Gentile area too would be sending a, you know, kind of a, it was instructive for the disciples, of course. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that he wanted to save the Gentiles too. I mean, he just heard them, they just heard him say that he's sent to the sheep of Israel and so forth when he was de dealing with this woman up in Phoenicia. But he still was the Messiah of everybody. Even though his focus and his, his main purpose was for him personally to minister to the Jews, he knew that his disciples, especially Peter, would, would be used in this, would be reaching the Gentiles. And we get to see that in, in, in the book of, of Acts there. So he's showing himself to be the Messiah and healing and providing and showing that he is the bread of life even for them in an area that's, that's mostly, um, I don't think this is a word, Gentilian, but maybe I can start that word. You know, you can use that without permission, Gentilian there. Uh, so... Uh, the disciples, again, they're not going to really get this right away. There's a lot of things that they don't get, which brings us tremendous comfort, right? Because we don't get a lot of things, and we're slow to understand, and our hearts can be hardened and so forth. So it's a great encouragement to us. Let's begin in verse 1. We're told, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now continued with me three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So he has compassion. And this and, and the parallel account in Matthew is the only time we see Jesus say that he has compassion. 
We're told from other writers that he was moved with compassion and all of that. But this is the only time and the other parallel passage where he actually says that he uh, has compassion on the multitude. And he has compassion for them, as we're told, because they had gone a long time without eating and they had to return and travel a long way, some of them. And so he didn't want them to faint. And I'm thankful he doesn't want people to faint because of they need to eat. I mean, maybe it's just me, you know, where I, I need to eat sometimes. You know, it's very important. And I, I obviously don't, am not challenged in that area. Um, I make sure that I get plenty to eat. Um, but, you know, he has compassion on them. Not just their hunger, but every need that they have. He has compassion. And it's good for us to be reminded that he has compassion on us. And he knows our needs before we do. And he, has, he wants to meet those needs so often, way before we're bringing it to him. You know, and it, it reminds me of when Jesus talked about prayer in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he talked about our Father, your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. And maybe that's an encouragement for somebody here today. You feel like maybe God's forgotten what you need. He hasn't forgotten what you need. He knows what you need. Before we even ask, he knows exactly what we need. Who is going to want to meet our needs more than God himself? The one that sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. But when we were still sinners, he died for us. And every need that we have, even the smallest of needs, sometimes we think, well, God wouldn't be concerned because it's a small need. Well, think of us, think of us, if you're a parent here, a grandparent, you think about how much you care about your kids and your grandkids and how there's not one little need that isn't important to you that they have. Everything's important. So it's beautiful just to see his heart, that he has compassion on them. He doesn't want them to faint. I've been in the area, this area now for a few days here. They've been listening to him, following him. They've been wanting to see his miracles. He's been healing them. He's been teaching them and helping them. Now he's providing for them uh, supernaturally uh, with food and so forth. And he, he loves everybody. Verse 4, Then his disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? This sound familiar? It sounds like they just asked this question not too long ago. I mean, you would think, and, you know, again, it's easy for us to say, you know, we're better than them or we know more than them, but, you know, we probably would be the same way. But they are, how is this going to happen? How, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness. It's almost as if they have amnesia. <laughs> and we're going to be told later in a few verses from now that their hearts are hard. And that, help, that helps us understand a little bit. When your heart's hardened, it's easy to forget and not have faith. You know that God can do something, but you're not quite sure if he will do it because maybe you're questioning his love or his concern. You know, Elijah was used greatly by the Lord and had this, this whole miracle that God arranged for him with, related to the showdown between the, the, the false priests and so forth, the false teachers of his day. And then later on, he's so depressed when he hears this, this threat from Jezebel and, and Ahab and everything. And, he, and you would think that he would remember what God did through his life and realize that those, 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 those two those notorious two that were cooking up something weren't going to be any threat to him. And, and, and what does God say? I have many more people that, are, that fear me. And we have no idea. We don't have the full picture. So God is patient with us. And, and you would think that he would say, stop and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you remember? And rebuke them. Don't you remember? And he is going to rebuke them. He is going to you know, basically call them to remember what happened and so forth. But he asks them a question because... I, th I believe he doesn't deal with that just yet because these people have, have the need. The needs are still there. And it, there's an acute need as far as he's concerned. He needs to, to feed them and so forth. So he's going to deal with the disciples a little bit later, but he wants to get to the feast here. So verse 5, we're told, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Again, they don't, they don't have chairs even in homes. And I like when on the movie The Passion of the Christ it has Jesus. They, they're showing this account when he's a carpenter and he's building a chair and every, all that. They didn't, they didn't sit, they didn't eat uh, in chairs. They, they ate reclining back on one arm and they, they were on the floor. And so he has them sit down on the ground there and, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. 
and they set them before the multitude. Now remember, the disciples had seen this before, but the multitude had never seen this before. This was all new, and it was almost as if it was new for the disciples related to where their heart was uh, and everything. But he has them sit down there, and we're told that he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. And it's, sometimes we wonder, you know, where is the biblical precedent for saying grace or asking, thanking God for our food? I mean, Jesus did this. He gave thanks. Paul later tells us in the epistles that everything is sanctified by thanksgiving and prayer and so forth. It's very important for us to thank God for the provision that he has given to us. Now, what's interesting about verse 6 here is that we're told that um, in the original language, there's some continuous verbs here. And, and it, it's, he talks about gave them to the disciples, set before them, and they set them before the multitude. And it's, it's talking about they kept doing it. You could put that in the, in, the, in the verse there. He kept giving them to the disciples. He kept setting them before the disciples. And then he kept, they kept setting them before the multitude. So it was a process. You're talking about feeding 4,000 that's thousands and thousands of people. And, and think about just trying to feed 4,000 people in our day with a bunch of servers and a big organization and planning and all of that. It takes a lot of effort to do that well. A lot of times when we're at weddings and we're at a, um, like kind of like a reception, they dismiss you, your table, and you kind of go in order. And there's a lot of planning and everything. And there's, you, we're not usually at a reception where there's 4,000 people. It takes a lot. So th- it shows this process of, and I'm sure that they were, thinking, you know, again, is this really happening? We, we only had seven loaves, and, and it just keeps growing. It just keeps happening. And, and how could this be possible? And it, it is something that is just truly amazing, if you think about it. He could multiply those things. And he multiplies provision for us when we bring them to him. We're told in Matthew that he said, bring them to me, when we talked about feeding the 5,000. So we have to offer what we have to him and, and say, it's it's yours to do what, what you want to do with. And he takes those things and he multiplies them and, and there's usually um, provision left over. Verse 7. They also had a few fish, and having blessed them, he said to set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he, and he sent them away. So again, this is not Jewish territory. This is Gentile area here. He's already fed 5,000 before, which was actually 10,000 when you can't probably, you know, women and children and so forth. This is 4,000. And it's different because last time there were um, these baskets, these 12 baskets that were left over with the feeding of the 5,000. And those, the word for basket in that account are small kind of where you would carry a lunch in small basket. But, but notice he says in verse 8, they took up seven large baskets there. It's a completely different word. It's a very big basket. It was the kind of basket that they would use to go to the market and take large amount, amounts of food back home. It's the same word that was used when Paul was lowered in a basket in, down a wall to escape when he was in Damascus when, after he was recently um, saved there. So this is completely different. This isn't 12 small baskets that for, for lunches, like little igloos, <laughs> little basket igloos or something. These are large baskets. So in volume, there's actually more left over with feeding of the 4,000 than there was with the 5,000. And, and it's very possible that he's teaching these disciples, or wanting to anyway, as they're faithful and they keep you know, progressing in their maturity and ministry and growing in faith and so forth, as they're obedient to what God tells us to do, that God will continue to supply and there's more increased blessing as a result of, of being faithful to him. We, we're not told specifically. It's interesting that and people go crazy with all of these you know, uh, symbolism and so forth with the seven baskets. You know, There were seven letters to the seven churches. Paul wrote seven letters to you know, seven different churches and all this. And it, it's just saying that there was a lot, of, a lot left over. <laughs> we don't have to get all deep into all of those things. If we were told specifically that there was deeper meaning, then we could, we could say that. But there's just a large amount that was left over. But they didn't take it very much with them back. That was a, that was a mistake that they were going to see in a moment. Verse 10. 
immediately, got, verse 10, immediately got into the boat and his, with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanthua. I'm sure I'm hacking that word pronunciation, but uh, they, there's no record of this city in secular history. It's the, it's the only place it appears in the scriptures, but they have found some, when the Sea of Galilee is really low, they have found some fishing villages that are in between Capernaum and, and, and other cities that they think very, could be, very well could be this city. But now they're back in Israel. They're on the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee there. And then we're told in verse 11, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, like they love to do, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So again, we're seeing this organized opposition. He's in the year of opposition now. This last year, last probably six months of his public ministry, and then they are coming to dispute him. This is why he left. This is why he went up into Phoenicia, all the way around the top area, down into the eastern side of the, of the, um, the River Jordan there, because outside of Israel proper, where there was less opposition, and he did, it wasn't his time yet, so he wasn't going to deal with them. But now he's come over to where they're at again, and we're told in verse 12, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. You ever do that? <laughs> I mean, this is—I mean, this is him having to deal with this again and again and again. And said, "Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation." So they weren't seeking Jesus for the right reasons. They weren't coming to him to listen to what he had to say, to receive from him. They were coming to him to dispute. Uh, him and come against him. And he says no sign's going to be given. You know, and that they wanted some kind of sign in the sky or some special miracle and all of that. And he was doing so many signs. He was fulfilling scripture. He was healing. Remember what he said to the servants or the disciples of John the Baptist, go tell John that the sick are healed and all these things. Those were the signs of a Messiah. When we get to the book of John, there's major signs that he, that he reveals uh, the gospel, in the Gospel of John for Jesus being the Messiah. But he says we shouldn't be looking for signs. You know, and that kind of carries over till today because people sometimes will have a faith that's based on signs. You know, I was sharing the gospel with a lady this week who was in the numerology, and she said um, that Jesus' number in numerology is 33, probably because he died around that age. And and she was saying, everywhere I go, I see the number 33. And then my number for this is this other number. And I see it everywhere and all these things. And she was trying to relate to God based on signs. And, and so that's very common in, in our day. And we can get superstitious with, you know, some pretty interesting things. I mean, we, I hear all the time people say, I got goosebumps, as if God works through goosebumps. You know, we're, I mean... Where does it say that God works and uses goosebumps to communicate to us? I'm not saying that that can't happen, but I mean, there's all kinds of circumstantial things or, or kind of like good luck charm things, and we can start getting uh, distracted at best and deceived at worst by focusing on all these things when God says, just look at my word, just like he wanted these Pharisees to be looking at his word for the authenticity of, of his calling as the Messiah but they were unwilling to do it. All we need in the scriptures, I mean, all we need in life are the scriptures to, to, to teach us, to guide us, to help us to know what the truth is. That's the standard, is the scriptures. And it doesn't change. It's not like we use the scriptures to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, and then we move on from there, and we're seeking all these miraculous things all the time, and we have to have these things happening or else we don't have our faith validated. The scriptures validate signs and wonders. Signs and wonders don't validate the scriptures. You know, that needs to be the foundational thing for our faith. Verse 13, we're told, and he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. So at least one of them remembered to take a loaf. So they didn't have quite enough there to eat. Verse 15, then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And he's saying here, especially in the original language, when he says take heed, he's saying keep on taking heed. Keep on. What's take heed mean? We don't say that today. Take heed. 
take heed. You know, that's King James era, you know, the, the Middle Ages or whatever, and that's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, you know, an old dated kind of way of saying things, but he's saying pay attention, to have, have your um, spiritual uh, frequency tuned into the right frequency there, and, and be aware, be, don't just walk through life and not be aware of this. What does he say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Constantly be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Constantly be aware of the leaven of Herod. Leaven is yeast. And in Scripture, yeast is, uh, yeast rather, is a picture of sin. And it spreads. The characteristics of yeast is that it's very, it spreads very quickly. And it takes over an entire loaf of bread. And it, since yeast has always been a picture of sin, that's why we see in the Old Testament well, they had to eat unleavened bread, and they would have to, in Passover, try to get all the yeast out of the house. And it's, it's always a picture of sin and holiness and getting, getting all the things that are related to disobedience out of our lives. But the Pharisees were uh, very hypocritical. And, he, and at one point, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's also false teaching and legalism and, and all those things, and, and so... It's good for us to, because he's talking to disciples here. He's talking to us. He's saying beware, consistently, constantly beware of the leaven, which spreads to the rest of the body of Christ, the leaven of the Pharisees. And it's hypocrisy, it's legalism, and there's just, we have to be careful because there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. We can think that we're better. We can think that we're superior to somebody else. Or we can add man-made rules to somebody and try to make them binding on somebody. Or we're just an actor. We're a hypocrite where we act a certain way, and, and, but yet in reality we're something in, inwardly entirely different. But not just the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. And Herod was corrupt. Those two characteristics of, of Herod was he was corrupt and he was immoral. And it's obviously related to what he just said about the leaven of the Pharisees because they were corrupt as well and they were uh, immoral, but they just hid it really well. So they were all those things inwardly, but outwardly they looked great. But Herod wasn't trying to hide anything. Herod was not a hypocrite. He didn't act a certain way and be something entirely different. He just came out and said, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And he was immoral and he was corrupt and so forth, but he was just... Uh, not trying to hide it or not pretend like he was something else. So that's, a, again, consistently be careful of the leaven of not just the Pharisees, but Herod of, of immorality, of being corrupt. And it's easy for us to forget that in this world as we're getting worse and worse and worse and we see compromises in professing Christianity and the bar of holiness being lowered and lowered and lowered and, and people giving excuses for ungodliness, saying, well, I just want to be able to relate to the world and have the world relate to me better, so I'm okay and I have freedom in Christ to do this and that that clearly Scripture is against. We can't let those people affect us. We can't let those things uh, encroach upon our knowledge of God wants us to live like him like Jesus, to be holy because he is holy. Because he says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so we have to recognize he wants to bring us into a, a relationship that's deeper and deeper related to holiness. And it's, it's, a, it's a privilege to live a holy life. It's not constrained. It's not a b big bummer, and he's not trying to ruin our fun and all these things that people think. It, it, sin is destructive, and he doesn't want us to be engaged in something that's destructive because he loves us and he cares for us. You know, freedom is not being able to do whatever we want, but freedom is having the capacity by God's grace to do what we should do. That's what true freedom is, to have the freedom to do what we know is right. That's what true freedom is. Verse 16. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. And Wrong answer. It's because we have no bread. He's upset that we forgot to bring more bread on this boat. He's, he's, he, we failed. We didn't bring enough bread. I'm sure Jesus would have liked them to have more bread, but they probably could use some fasting <laughs> at this point. But that's the wrong answer. And then Jesus fires off just like an Uzi. 
just fires off nine questions, one after another, one after another. I don't know any place else in Scripture where he's firing this many. You ever had someone ask you a bunch of questions and you only have time to answer? You're just like, and you're trying to answer, and there's one question after another, after another, after another, after another. This is what happens, verse 17. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do do you uh, not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Again, nine questions, trying to wake them up, trying to get them to see. Here he fed 5,000 with with women and children, around 10,000. He fed the 4,000. And and because he's asking how many was left over, it's talking about, I believe it shows that their lack of faith for him to provide for them. And, and, And it's almost like as if they're having trouble believing that he'll feed 12. (laughs) <laughs> after feeding all those thousands, now they're like, hmm, I'm not sure if he can feed us or take care of us. But the highlight of all of this is verse 18, where we're told, he said, do you not remember? See, that's, the, that's where, what we need to hear today. Do we not remember? God has a track record with us. He has worked in our lives. Even if we've known the Lord just a few weeks he not only does he work, obviously, when we come to know Christ, he works, we can see his fingerprints in our lives way before we came to know him and his faithfulness to us and what he spared us from and what he delivered us from once we came to him and all of that. Do you not remember? Do you not remember? It's good for us to remember all of the faithfulness he's demonstrated. If he did nothing else for us our entire lives, think of that cross. It's so perfect expression of his love and provision of what our greatest need was was forgiveness and he came through but he has so much more of a testimony with us related to how he's provided for us faithfully provided for us how he's used us how we've seen him come through there's a reason why he had the children of israel pile up memorial stones to remember what he did so that they can trust him for the future And so he's always stretching us. He's always having us be stretched so we can trust him for more. But he wants us to remember the past. You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, when he talks about the faith that all the patriarchs had and so forth, he's getting ready in chapter 12, the writer, to talk about us running a race and and running with endurance. And he, he begins that chapter by saying, because we have been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... He's not talking about people in heaven looking down on us now. He's talking about the witnesses in chapter 11 that were witnesses that the walk of faith is worth it. It's always been worth it. Even the ones that didn't receive the promise in this life, it was still worth it. And so for us to remember those that have gone before us, but not just that, how he's worked in our lives as well and the faithfulness that he's he's shown us very important. And then he asks in verse 17, is your heart still hardened? That reveals us. So he knows our hearts. And their hearts have been hardened. We've, we've been tracking this ever since he talked about the parable of the soils. When he talked about different types of soils and some of it was hard soil where the roots of the word of God could not go down deep. And so we've seen him tracking with them in their hearts and so forth. And so that's the problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. It's not a mind problem. It's a trust problem that they have there. And he's exposing it. And he's also exposing that they're not thinking on the spiritual plane. That's why he says in verse 17, do you not yet perceive nor understand? Having eyes to see, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He's wanting them to see things on a spiritual plane. And it's easy for us to forget that our whole lives are a spiritual life. We've just been awakened to it. Before you come to know Christ, I say this to new believers all the time, now your eyes have been opened. 
Now you can see what's really going on spiritually behind the scenes and the, and the battle going on for souls and what's the, the agenda that the enemy has behind the scenes. You can see all those things and you can't see them before you come to know Christ. But once you come to know him, your eyes are open and you see it. You see the battle, of course, going on in your own life. And so he's saying to them, you need to be thinking of the spiritual. That's why when we're in our situations in life and our, going through our day and our week, to be, always be paying attention. That's what he's working towards in our lives, to get us to where we're thinking about spiritual things wherever we go. We're thinking about the fact that we bring the kingdom of God with us wherever we go and that he wants to use us at any given moment, not just in the lives of unbelievers, but the lives of our family, the lives of our children, the lives of our relatives and friends and so forth. He wants to use us at any given moment, but if we're not tuned in, we're not thinking about it, we can miss divine appointments and supernatural um, kind of ways that he has brought us together with people for those purposes. God always wants us to look through the situation through the eyes of faith. It's so easy for any of us to look at a situation through the lens of human understanding, to look through the situation through the lens of how difficult it could be, how impossible it looks. I call it the Eeyore. Oh, boy. What's going to happen? Nothing good can happen. You know, all of that doubt and all of that unbelief. And it's important for us when we talk to each other, when we interact with one another, to be speaking to each other with the, in, within the context of the kingdom of God and how God sees our situation. If we were always mindful of how God sees our situation or the situation of someone else that we're, that we're interacting with, and we speak those things, and we communicate those things, how does it affect the situation? It affects the situation in a massive way. Because you're bringing God into the situation. You're bringing his whole kingdom and how he's working and what he wants to do. You're, you're looking at someone's situation or your situation through that lens, and it completely changes the, the, the whole perspective. Because just like faith is, is, is contagious, so is fear. So is doubt. So is uh, not honoring God with our perspective and so forth. So we have to guard against that. Verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Why does he do that? We're not told. But he does say this in another place in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Cherazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth in ashes. In ashes. So it's very possible he wants to, they're not worthy of seeing this miracle at the moment, or, and or, it could have been that, that he didn't want, when he was going to do this miracle, he knew that it would it would affect people who would become famous and all. He's about to tell them after he heals them to not tell anybody, and he doesn't want that to, to happen within Bethsaida and kind of speed things up in terms of it's the timeline of the cross. We're not told, but, he, but I want you to picture the situation. Jesus is, he doesn't, doesn't uh, um, delegate this to a disciple. You know, Peter, hold that guy's hand, and let's walk out of the city. He takes his hand personally there. So he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. So he's walking hand in hand with this blind man. He can't see where he's going. He's leading him where he wants him to go. He personally takes him by the hand. And we're told also uh, in verse 23, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. This is different, spitting on eyes. I mean, that. I don't know if God's ever led you to do that, uh, I would recommend really making sure you've heard from the Lord before you're all, you know, <laughs> right on someone's eyes, especially if God doesn't heal them. I mean, uh, that, that, that wouldn't be good. But, he, you know, it obviously would, for the man, it would let him know that so, he's doing something, you know, because he, he spit on his eyes and all of that. But I love the fact how Jesus heals differently. And this is the only time where blindness is, is healed gradually and healing is done in, in a process because he asked him in verse, um, I mean, he answered him 20, 24 and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. So it wasn't, his, the clarity wasn't there. It was just big, you know, groups of 
of color and so forth. And he's saying it looked kind of like trees. There's not very much definition to this. They're walking around there. And then um, verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he's restored and saw everybody clearly. So he healed in stages there. And notice he says restored. So evidently this man had, had, this, he had lost his sight at some point. He wasn't blind from birth. Was, his eyes was restored. He saw everybody clearly. And when the interesting word there is clearly because it really means, it, it's literally a, like a glistening edge. And it's talking about definition there. You know, we used to have regular TVs that were re- really thick. And they had clickers. We used to call them clickers. You know, that's called the remote control now or the remote. But they used to be called clickers. Some of you remember that. And, and then over time, they got better and better resolution. And now we have HD and we have 4HD. And, you know, now things look more clear than they do in real life. You know, it's just like, looks like a cartoon or something. You know, but that's kind of the idea is he saw men like trees and then now there's this like glistening edge of definition that's there so that he sees everything exactly how he should see it. And, and it just makes us wonder, how does God decide when he does heal instantly and how he, when he heals like in a process? Because he heals us sometimes in a process. There's nothing wrong with that. There's purposes. There's reasons for that. There's a reason why it wasn't that Jesus was struggling you know, spit, and then like, okay, it didn't quite work. I got to pray again because I didn't quite have enough power to get it done the first time perfectly. That's not the case at all. There was a reason for this. And I think part of it has to do with us understanding that sometimes God heals people and and heals us in, in stages sometimes. We see that mentally or emotionally or inward healing or all these things. There's a process. And sometimes we can think that a process of healing is less supernatural than healing instantaneously. It doesn't take any less power to heal uh, over time than it does to, to heal instantly. It takes just as much power. And it's okay. He, he's okay with that. It creates more dependency. And I realized that this healing was in stages really fast, close to each other. It wasn't like he was waiting hours and days and weeks and all of that. But just because that isn't the case in this particular account doesn't mean that he doesn't do it in stages in other ways in our lives. And it's just as supernatural it's just as much of a healing as if he did it all at, at, at one time. Verse 26. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell anyone in the town. Now, in verse 27. And now, and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. So it's in the extreme north now. Caesarea Philippi, it's right by Mount, by Mount Hermon. And remember I told you there was three markers in the Gospels, and I'm not going to go into all the depth of all of that, but the third marker that shows us that he's getting ready to start preparing his disciples for his departure and starting, and Luke says it this way, from that point on he steadfastly faced towards Jerusalem. So he's going to start making his way back to Jerusalem for the last time. And in the process of that, he's going to heal people. We're going to see that. He's going to deliver people. He's going to continue to be who he is. But he's also going to be preparing his disciples for his departure. But we see that in all four Gospels when he went to Caesarea Philippi at this point. And then he starts facing towards Jerusalem. So that's why he's he's at this city to to do that. Now, Caesarea Philippi had a, they worshipped this false god named Pan. And they had this cave. And this cave where they worshipped Pan was called, had a nickname called the Gates of Hell. And we're told in another gospel that Jesus talked about that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so he's here at this very strategic place here. This place also is one of the two sources of the Jordan River. Uh, the other one was, was in the city of Tel Dan. And in Tel Dan, there's seven millions of gallons of water that's produced an hour. So between that place and Caesarea Philippi, when you go there, you can see the, the water coming out from that, from that spring there um, is a very important uh, uh, geographical location related to um, the Israel. And he continues there in verse 27. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, 
who do men say that I am? It's interesting. We, we picture this, this question coming at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but it's not. It doesn't come at the beginning of his public ministry. This is like the last six months or so of his public ministry. And so you see how he's bringing the disciples along, progressive revelation of who he is or getting to know who he is. And he's, he's been saying, don't tell anybody this. And when people have come to the right conclusion and all of that. And here he is towards the end of his uh, public ministry. And he says, who do men say that I am? I had a shirt when I was a new Christian. And I don't know if you, any of you ever saw it. It's a T-shirt. And it had Jesus on the cross. And, and, and you couldn't really see it that well close up. But when you got further back, it would come into definition there. And it said, who do, men, who do you say that I am? And that, that shirt, I wish they still had that shirt because that brought up so many conversations about the gospel because it was just piercing the people. Because I'd be way across the mall on the other side of the mall and someone could see it that clearly from over there and you'd see them just... And they'd be thinking, you know, who do I say that Jesus is? You know, and they'd be thinking about it. But he's asking this question. Look, notice their answer in verse 28. John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. See, there's a biblical, John the, or, um, Herod thought that John the Baptist had come back to life. But there was something in scripture related to uh, Elijah coming in the last days. I believe that'll be, he'll be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. John, or Jesus said he's not Elijah, but he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So people had all these different opinions one of the prophets, you know, Moses prof- prophesied that there would come a prophet after him talking about the Messiah. So that was something that people were looking for that were, that were Jews and, and all of that. And, and so there's all these different opinions. And it's kind of that same way today, right? You ask, who is Jesus? When you're sharing your faith, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a, he is a good moral teacher. He's a... He's a, a prophet. There's all kinds of answers. Even in Islam, right in the Quran, it talks about Jesus being a prophet. But he's not only a prophet because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God in human flesh. And good prophets don't say that they're God when they're not. <laughs> it's just kind of a rule. If you're mistaken about being God, then you're probably not a prophet. And you're not just a good teacher because good teachers don't do that either if they're not God. So he's asking, who do men say that I am? Then it gets personal in verse 29. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, again, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's going to tell them about the cross in a minute. But he's preparing them for his departure, and he, he wants them to know who he is and what he's about. And so Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah, and in some ways, we know more about Jesus. In a lot of ways, we know more about Jesus than the disciples did at this moment in time. We know way more about, about him, even though we didn't live with him and hear his teaching in person and all of that. We have God's revelation and his word, and we've studied, we've learned about him, we've seen him work in our own lives and so forth. But we have to ask the same question. Who is he to us? Who is he? Is he, is he our Lord? And is, is he our Lord in every area? That's a good searching question for all of us. What part of it is he not Lord of? He wants to be the Lord of everything in, in our lives, in every part of our lives. But he says, you are the Christ. And then in verse 30, we're told, then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. See, they were still misunderstanding about what his mission was. They thought he was going to be a political messiah. So obviously, I would imagine he doesn't want them sharing with, with people that what because they don't know his mission. They know that he's the Messiah, but they may not know exactly what his mission was. Even on the, on the day where he ascended to heaven, they're asking, Lord, is this the time that you restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking of a political Messiah instead of a spiritual Messiah. Now he gets to beginning his preparation for, their, for his departure with them in verse 31. Look with me there. He says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice the word began in the beginning of verse 31. And he began to teach them. See, he's starting this process at Caesarea Philippi, starting to reveal what's going to happen to them, him. And, he's, and we're told there, in verse 32, that he spoke this word openly. He just plainly said, 
And you'd think that because he spoke so openly and made it so clear that they'd remember that after he died. But again, they, they missed it. Again, they were so involved, you know, in consumed with thinking about a spiritual or a political Messiah, they weren't thinking that he was a spiritual Messiah. And Peter took him aside. This is a great start for a pope here. And began to rebuke him. <laughs> but when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It's an interesting picture. Here Peter begins to rebuke him. And I don't believe this is a disrespectful thing at all. I believe that he really wanted Jesus to stay with Jesus and Jesus to be the political Messiah that he was expecting and all of that. I don't believe he, I mean, it was disrespectful in the way of rebuking your Lord and Savior, but I don't think his heart meant it that way. And, and so he, he, he does this, but then notice it says that he turned around and looked at his disciples. When he turned around at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He turned his back on Peter. You see that? He turned around and looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter and said, get thee behind me, Satan. And so he's visibly showing he's behind me and he's, you're, you're, being, uh, you're being motivated. You're mindful of the things of, 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 of man, not the things of God. And it's, he's speaking to all the disciples. Now this is, because he just got done speaking about the cross and all of those things that were supposed to happen. And then they're saying, he, Peter's saying, no, that's not going to happen. I mean, it, it reminds me of when he was tempted in the wilderness. And Satan was trying to do everything to get him to worship him and forsake his, the plan that God had, that Father had for him and all of that. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and all these things. And he was trying to get him to avoid the cross. And so it was very familiar to him to have Satan be working to uh, try to get that to not happen. So even the thought of the cross not happening, Jesus is seeing that as being inspired of Satan or representing what Satan would want for him. And he makes a very clear uh, public declaration that this is not, this is not of God and, and turns around, turns his back on Peter and, 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 and rebukes him. Notice the word mindful there. Very interesting word. It literally means the thinking that tastes good. You know, this is what the King James says, the old King Jimmy. It says, For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. So it's talking about something that's appealing, thinking something like, that's why savory is used in the old King James there. Something that sounds good, that sounds appealing. I mean, we think about things to eat, and it's, oh, that tastes good, and, or just the thought of that. I would love to have that right now, and you start salivating because of that. Your physiology doesn't even know that you're not seeing the real cheeseburger or whatever, just a commercial, but you're still salivating and all of that, and you're thinking that way. And he's saying, you are not mindful. Those things are not attractive to you. The things of God don't taste good in your mind right now. The things of men do because the, the things of men are always going to be against the cross and against what Jesus did and so forth. So it's really strong rebuke, not just for Peter, but for the rest of the disciples and all of us as his disciples. Verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what we are called to every day. And, he, and it's talking about a continuous taking up our cross, a continuing, you know, a continual following him every single day. We have to settle the lordship issue every single day, every single moment, really, when it comes into challenge, when someone, something challenges it. But God wants us to settle that issue every day. And we're told in other places that he says daily, the word daily. We can't have a weekly faith. We can't have a monthly faith or a yearly faith for sure. Some people have a holiday faith where they only come during the holidays and they only think about God in those times. We have to have a daily faith, a daily walking with Christ. That's why he says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. See, that's the problem is ourselves. We need to die to self. And false teachers are trying to help self 
fulfill what the self wants with all the dreams and plans and all of this that we can come up with. But he says, no, you need to deny yourself. Now, does that mean that God doesn't want us to enjoy things? No, not at all. But he wants us to enjoy the things that he's allowed into our lives. If we take up our cross daily and follow him, then we, that leads us into his general overall long-term plan. And, and in the context of that plan, as he allows things to, be, to remain and brings blessings into our lives, he wants us to enjoy those things. He says every good and perfect gift is from above. So we're supposed to enjoy those things, but those things need to be filtered through his plan and his leading day by day so that we can know, okay, God really does want me to have this, and he wants me to enjoy it, but he also he's will, he wants me to be willing to let it go at any time because he can bring things in and he can bring things out of my life as he sees fit, and he wants us to be content with that. You know, the cross has been glamorized and sanitized. It was a thing that you used to kill people. It was an execution tool. It'd be like wearing an electric chair around your you know, a necklace with an electric chair on it. Who does that? We've turned it into something beautiful, and it is beautiful from the standpoint of what God's done, but it was a disgusting, gross execution tool that they used that was ruthless. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. You'd be beheaded because it was quick, and that was more merciful. That was more worthy of a Roman citizen because on a, on a cross, you were crucified and you suffered and you, you died a, a slow death. Sometimes you'd be up there for days and days and days. That's why they were surprised that the Lord Jesus had already died because he had given up his spirit. No man took his life. He gave his life for us. And so he calls us to take up, notice it says his cross. We have an individual cross because we have individual lives and each one of our lives needs to be crucified in a very specific way that he lays out every single day. And then he says, and follow me to go forward and do what he says to do every day. And that's why we have to be tuned in to him. But then he elaborates further in verse 35. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, notice that the gospels will save it. The key to having a life that he's called us to have. The abundant life comes through dying to self and taking up our cross and lose our life. To basically say, you take my life and what you want it to be, you turn it into what you want it to be, God. And then that's when we have, that's when we know that we're going to have eternal life. Eternal life isn't earned by taking up our cross daily. But if we are taking up our cross daily, it's an evidence that we already have eternal life because it starts when we receive Christ. Eternal life starts at the moment of conversion. Then he adds to it in verse 36, and verse 37, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? How valuable are our souls? More valuable than anything. One soul is more valuable than everything in this world combined. And he knows that. And that's why he died for us, and he died to redeem our souls. Isaiah says by the Spirit that this world will be rolled up like an old garment. Peter says by the Spirit that it will dissolve by heat, and all of the chemicals will just, I mean, the, he'll let go of all of the chemical makeup of everything, and the universe will, will, will melt. It's all passing away, but our souls will remain for all eternity. Verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in glory of, the, of his Father and, and with the holy angels. So he calls us, when we die to self, we take up our cross, we're not going to be ashamed of him. We're not going to be ashamed of him. We're not going to cow down or, or to bow down to pressure from the culture to compromise and to, to be ashamed of, of him. And he, he knows it's good for us to be bold for him and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a disciple of his. I'm not ashamed of him. There's nothing I would ever say or do to go back on what the commitment I've made to him. And that's the kind of commitment that he wants. And that's not going to happen as we get towards the end. We're going to be more and more people falling away, denying him, and all those things, which is an evidence of where they're at spiritually. So we'll stop there as we close. Previous lessons don't need to be learned again related to ministry. 
We don't have to learn things over and over again. He wants us to be spiritually tuned in, have our hearts soft, and, and honor him with our faith and, and continue to trust him as he brings us closer and closer into a closer relationship with him. And then lastly, the privilege of dying to self. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to let him take our lives and make us into the people he's called us to be. But it only happens by dying to self, taking up our cross every day and following him. And nobody gets to the end of their life and completely just looks at their life and say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. It was a waste of my life. When people are on their deathbeds, they say, I wish I would have followed him more and close, more and more closely than I did. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We don't want our hearts hardened, Lord. Keep our hearts soft. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the disciples that you've called us to be, to live for you unashamedly, Lord, and, and boldly before this world. And I pray that you would continue to make us more and more mature disciples. Lord, help us to continue to honor you with our faith and not have to learn lessons over and over again. We thank you, Lord, that you do all things well and you continue to work in our lives as only you can. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.